This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Daughters of the Moon by Italo Calvino. And her body was not the only one glowing before my eyes. Now I saw girls everywhere, stretched out in the strangest poses, clinging to the radiators, doors, and fenders of the speeding cars. The story was chosen by Robert Coover, whose last novel, Noir, came out in 2010. A new novel, The Brunus Day of Wrath, will be published in September. Robert Coover joins us from Providence, Rhode Island. Hi, Bob. Hi. So my first question for you is, is what made Calvino an obvious choice for you here? When we talked about this, you mentioned this triumvirate of Calvino and Borges and Bartholomew, and I, I just wondered, are those the writers you turn to most often? Well, they're the New Yorker writers I turn to most <laughs> often. There are other authors, some who predate the New Yorker by several centuries that I also turn to. But um, Calvino especially, I think, in that list, um, he was the writer who most nearly approximated the type of writing or thinking about writing that characterized my work and the work of a lot of writers of my generation. So uh, I was pleased to see that there was something that you had published that had not been read and that I could choose it. Um, Perhaps not his most typical sort of story. It's got a little bit more of a message than a lot of uh, Calvino's work, but it does contain his uh, those tremendous imaginative gifts that he had and his love of, uh, of sort of traditional forms of folktale, of fairy tale type of uh, uh, thinking that uh, informs a very contemporary tale. Well, you mentioned that you assigned this story in your exemplary ancient fictions class. What is that class? And what is ancient about this particular story, which was which was written in 1968? <laughs> yeah, that was about the time I started teaching uh, this course, actually. It was in 67, I think I taught the first one. I uh, began it as a course for writers to kind of break uh, into their conventional habits. I was teaching at Iowa, where... Ninety percent of the writers were trying desperately to write the next, uh, well, next New Yorker story, I guess, but the next commercial tale that they could peddle. And consequently, they were being very imitative of the writing of that particular era. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to kind of crack into that mindset and introduce a new way of thinking about writing. So I created the course, the whole purpose of which was to suggest other possible strategies for narrative starting with uh, creation myths and um, Bible stories and uh, moving through various forms of primitive writing up through the early Greeks and into Ovid, and Ovid was kind of a climactic moment, and then uh, on into fairy tale, folk tale, and medieval romance. So while we were reading these ancient works, we also read contemporary work which seemed to exemplify the sort of writing that I was trying to introduce, and not in 1967, but eventually I was using, uh, in addition to Angela Carter and Borges and others, I was using Calvino, basically his uh, cosmic comics. And then when you guys published this story, I thought, hey, that's a good one. So that particular semester, uh, I simply, uh, with apologies, uh, photocopied it and passed (laughs) it around as one of the stories we would talk about. The Daughters of the Moon is from his Cosmic Comics series, which you mentioned. Yeah. They're, they're quite short stories, and each one of them starts with a kind of italicized hypothesis or or fact drawn from his 
scientific reading, which he then uses as a starting point for a story. And and these stories are told from the point of view of a of a sort of shape shifting narrator whose name you're going to pronounce interestingly because it's spelled Q F W F Q. Do you think that there's anything else that people need to know about this story before they hear you read it? I would say that it's a little different from the majority of Calvino's cosmic comics. The majority of the cosmic comics take a, a point and compose a hugely comic piece, often very uh, imaginatively funny. It's the kind of thing that you don't laugh out loud. You just inside you're kind of tickled by the way his imagination is making something happen. Mm-hmm. Daughters of the Moon is a more, you might say, programmatic uh, story. It's a story that uh, has a message to deliver and an overt message. Uh, he always has something hidden away in his stories, but not so clearly as this one, which is dealing with consumerism mm-hmm. and the kind of eating up of the earth <laughs> by way of it. So his tale has a, a slightly different tone than a lot of his work. And then the second different tone uh, from most cosmic comics is the eroticism of it. Um, Calvino is rarely indulges in erotic imagery. But this one has all these naked girls and even uh, an embarrassment about them as they ride around on the hood of his car. So <laughs> it has a special quality. It's a unique uh, Calvino tale. Great. We'll talk more about the story later. And now here's Robert Coover reading The Daughters of the Moon by Italo Calvino. Deprived, as it was, of a covering of air to act as a protective shield... The moon found itself exposed, right from the start, to a continual bombardment of meteorites and to the corrosive action of the sun's rays. According to Thomas Gold of Cornell University, the rocks on the moon's surface were reduced to powder through constant attrition from meteorite particles. According to Gerard Kuiper of the University of Chicago, the escape of gases from the moon's magma may have given the satellite a light, porous consistency like that of a pumice stone. The moon is old, Quifk agreed, pitted with holes, worn out. Rolling naked through the skies, it erodes and loses its flesh like a bone that's been gnawed. This is not the first time that such a thing has happened. I remember moons that were even older and more battered than this one. I've seen loads of these moons, seen them being born and running across the sky and dying out, one punctured by hail from shooting stars, another exploding from all its craters, and yet another oozing drops of topaz-colored sweat that evaporated immediately, then being covered by greenish clouds and reduced to a dried-up, spongy shell. What happens on the earth when a moon dies is not easy to describe. I'll try to do it by referring to the last instance I can remember. Following a lengthy period of evolution, the Earth had more or less reached the point where we are now. In other words, it had entered the phase when cars wear out more quickly than the soles of shoes. Beings that were barely human, manufactured and bought and sold things, and cities covered the continents with luminous color. These cities grew in approximately the same places as our cities do now, however different the shape of the continents was. 
There was even a New York that in some way resembled the New York familiar to all of you, but was much newer, or rather, more awash with new products, new toothbrushes. A New York with its own Manhattan that stretched out dense with skyscrapers, gleaming like the nylon bristles of a brand new toothbrush. In this world, where every object was thrown away at the slightest sign of breakage or aging, at the first dent or stain, and replaced with a new and perfect substitute, there was just one false note, one shadow, the moon. It wandered through the sky, naked, corroded, and gray, more and more alien to the world down here, a hangover from a way of being that was now outdated. Ancient expressions like full moon, half moon, last quarter moon continued to be used, but were really only figures of speech. How could we call full a shape that was all cracks and holes, and it always seemed on the point of crashing down on our heads in a shower of rubble? Not to mention when it was a waning moon. It was reduced to a kind of nibbled cheese rind, and it always disappeared before we expected it to. At each new moon, we wondered whether it would ever appear again. Were we hoping that it would simply disappear? And when it did reappear, looking more and more like a comb that had lost its teeth, we averted our eyes with a shudder. It was a depressing sight. We went out in the crowds, our arms laden with parcels, coming and going from the big department stores that were open day and night, and while we were scanning the neon signs that climbed higher and higher up the skyscrapers and notified us constantly of new products that had been launched, we'd suddenly see it advancing, pale amid those dazzling lights, slow and sick, and we could not get it out of our heads that every new thing, each product that we had just bought, could similarly wear out, deteriorate, fade away, and we would lose our enthusiasm for running around buying things and working like crazy, a loss that was not without consequences for industry and commerce. That was how we began to consider the problem of what to do with it, this counterproductive satellite. It did not serve any purpose. It was a useless wreck. As it lost weight, it started to incline its orbit toward the Earth. It was dangerous above and beyond anything else. And the nearer it got, the more it slowed its course. We could no longer calculate its phases. Even the calendar, the rhythm of the months, had become a mere convention. The moon went forward in fits and starts as though it were about to collapse. On these nights of low moon, people of a more unstable temperament began to do weird things. There was always a sleepwalker edging along the parapet of a skyscraper with his arms reaching toward the moon, or a werewolf starting to howl in the middle of Times Square, or a pyromaniac setting fire to the dock warehouses. By now, these were common occurrences that no longer attracted the usual crowd of rubberneckers. But when I saw a girl sitting completely naked on a bench in Central Park, I had to stop. Even before I saw her, I'd had the feeling that something mysterious was about to happen. As I drove through Central Park at the wheel of my convertible, I felt myself bathed in a flickering light like that of a fluorescent bulb emitting a series of livid, blinking flashes before it turns on fully. The view all around me was like that of a garden that had sunk into a lunar crater. 
The naked girl sat beside a pond, reflecting a slice of moon. I braked. For a second, I thought I recognized her. I ran out of the car toward her, but then I froze. I did not know who she was. I just felt that I urgently had to do something for her. Everything was scattered on the grass around the bench, her clothes, a stocking and shoe here and the others there, her earrings, necklace, and bracelets, purse and shopping bag with the contents spilled out in a wide arc, and countless packages and goods, almost as if the creature had felt herself called on her way back from a lavish shopping spree and had dropped everything, realizing that she had to free herself of all objects and signs that bound her to the earth, and she was now waiting to be assumed into the lunar sphere. "'What's happening?' I stammered. Can I help you? Help, she asked, with her eyes staring upward. Nobody can help. Nobody can do anything. And it was clear that she was not talking about herself, but about the moon. The moon was above us, a convex shape almost crushing us, a ruined roof studded with holes like a cheese grater. Just at that moment, the animals in the zoo began to growl. Is this the end? I asked mechanically, and I myself didn't even know what I meant. She replied, It's the beginning, or something like that. She spoke almost without opening her lips. What do you mean, it's the beginning of the end, or something else is beginning? She got up, walked across the grass. She had long, copper-colored hair that came down over her shoulders. She was so vulnerable that I felt the need to protect her, in some way to shield her, and I moved my hands toward her as though to be ready to catch her if she fell, or to ward off anything that might harm her. But my hands did not dare even graze her, and always stayed a few centimeters from her skin. And as I followed her, in this way, past the flower gardens, I realized that her movements were similar to mine, that she, too, was trying to protect something fragile, something that might fall and shatter into pieces, and that needed thus to be led toward a place where it could settle gently, something that she could not touch but could only guide with her gestures. The moon. The moon seemed lost. Having abandoned the course of its orbit, it no longer knew where to go. It let itself be transported like a dry leaf. Sometimes it appeared to be plummeting toward the earth, at others corkscrewing in a spiral movement, and at still others it looked to be just drifting. It was losing height, that was certain. For a second it seemed as if it would crash into the Plaza Hotel, but instead it slid into the corridor between two skyscrapers and disappeared from view in the direction of the Hudson. It reappeared shortly afterward on the opposite side of the city, popping out from behind a cloud, bathing Harlem and the East River in a chalky light, and, as though caught by a gust of wind, it rolled toward the Bronx. "'There it is!' I shouted. "'There! It stopped!' "'It can't stop!' the girl exclaimed, and she ran naked and barefoot over the grass. "'Where are you going? You can't wander around like that. Stop! Hey! I'm talking to you. What's your name?' She shouted out a name like Diana or Diana, something that could also have been an invocation, and she disappeared. In order to follow her, I jumped back into my car and began to search the drives of Central Park. The beams of my headlights lit up hedges, hills, obelisks, but the girl, 
Diana was nowhere to be seen. By now I had gone too far. I must have passed her. I turned around to go back the way I'd come. A voice behind me said, No, it's there. Keep going. Sitting behind me on the trunk of my car was the naked girl, pointing toward the moon. I wanted to tell her to get down to explain that I could not travel across the city with her so prominently on view in that condition, but I did not dare to distract her, intent as she was on not losing sight of the luminous glow that was disappearing and reappearing at the end of the drive. And in any case, and this was even stranger, no passerby seemed to notice this female apparition sitting up on the trunk of my car. We crossed one of the bridges that link Manhattan to the mainland. Now we were going along a multi-lane highway with other cars alongside us, and I kept my eyes staring straight ahead, fearing the laughter and crude comments that the sight of the two of us was no doubt prompting in the cars around us. But when a sedan overtook us, I nearly went off the road in surprise. Crouched on its roof was a naked girl with her hair blowing in the wind. For a second, I thought that my passenger was leaping from one speeding car to another, but all I had to do was turn my head ever so slightly to see that Diana's knees were still there, level with my nose. And her body was not the only one glowing before my eyes. Now I saw girls everywhere, stretched out in the strangest poses, clinging to the radiators, doors, and fenders of the speeding cars, their golden or dark strands of hair contrasting with the pink or dark gleam of their naked skin. There was one of these mysterious female passengers on every car, all leaning forward, urging their drivers to follow the moon. They had been summoned by the endangered moon, I was certain of that. How many of them were there? More cars carrying lunar girls gathered at every crossroads and junction, converging from all quarters of the city to the place above which the moon seemed to have stopped. At the edge of the city, we found ourselves in front of an automobile scrapyard. The road petered out in an area with little valleys, ridges, hills, and peaks, but it was not the contours of the land that created the uneven surface, but rather the layers of things that had been thrown away, everything that the consumerist city had used up and expelled so that it could immediately enjoy the pleasure of handling new things had ended up in this unprepossessing neighborhood. Over the course of many years, piles of battered fridges, yellowing issues of Life magazine, and burnt-out light bulbs had accumulated around an enormous wrecking yard. It was over this jagged, rusty territory that the moon now loomed, and the swaths of crumpled metal swelled as if carried on a high tide. They resembled each other, the decrepit moon and that crust of the earth which had been soldered into an amalgam of wreckage. The mountains of scrap metal formed a chain that closed in on itself like an amphitheater, whose shape was precisely that of a volcanic crater or a lunar sea. The moon hung over this space, and it was as if the planet and its satellite were acting as mirror images of each other. Our car engines had all stopped. Nothing intimidates cars as much as their own cemeteries. Diana got down and all the other Dianas followed. 
But their energy now seemed to fade. They moved with uncertain steps, as though, on finding themselves amid those shards of scrap iron, they were suddenly seized by an awareness of their own nakedness. Many of them folded their arms to cover their breasts as if shivering with cold. As they did this, they scattered, climbing over the mountains of useless scrap and down into the amphitheater, where they found themselves forming a huge circle in the middle. Then they all raised their arms together. The moon gave a start, as though affected by that gesture of theirs, and it seemed for an instant to recover its energy and to climb again. The circle of girls stood with their arms outstretched and their faces and breasts turned toward the moon. Was that what the moon had asked of them? Did it need them to support it in the sky? I did not have time to ponder this question. At that very moment, the crane entered the scene. The crane had been designed and built by the authorities, who had decided to cleanse the sky— of its inelegant encumbrance. It was a bulldozer from which a kind of crab's claw rose up. It came forward on its caterpillar treads, squat and stocky, just like a crab, and when it arrived at the place that had been prepared for the operation, it seemed to become even more squat, to cling to the earth with all its surface. The winch spun quickly, and the crane raised its arm into the sky. Nobody had believed that a crane with such a long arm could be built. Its bucket opened, revealing all its teeth. Now, more than a crab's claw, it resembled a shark's mouth. The moon was right there. It wavered as though it wanted to escape, but the crane seemed to be magnetized. As we watched, the moon was vacuumed up, as it were, landing in the crane's jaws, which closed around it with a dry sound. Crack! For a second, it seemed as if the moon had crumbled like a meringue, but instead it rested there, half in and half out of the jaws of the bucket. It had been flattened into an oblong shape, a kind of thick cigar held between the bucket's teeth. Down came a shower, the color of ashes. The crane now tried to drag the moon down out of its orbit. The winch had started to wind backward, at this point, the winding required a huge effort. Diana and her friends had stayed motionless with their arms raised throughout this process, as though hoping to overcome the enemy's aggression with the strength of their circle. It was only when the ash from the disintegrating moon rained down on their faces and breasts that they began to disperse. Diana let out a sharp cry of lament. At that point, the imprisoned moon lost what little light it had left. It became a black, shapeless rock. It would have crashed down onto the earth had it not been held back by the bucket's teeth. Down below, the workmen had prepared a metal net, which was fixed to the ground with long nails, all around the space where the crane was slowly lowering its load. Once it was on the ground, the moon was a pockmarked, sandy boulder, so dull and opaque that it was incredible to think that it had once illuminated the sky with its shining reflection. The jaws of the bucket opened, the bulldozer retreated on its caterpillar treads and almost flipped over as it was suddenly lightened of its load. The workmen were ready with the net. They wrapped it around the moon, trapping it between the net and the ground. The moon struggled in its straight jacket, 
A tremor like that of an earthquake caused avalanches of empty cans to slide down from the mountain of refuse. Then all was peaceful again. The now moonless sky was drenched with bursts of light from big lamps. But the darkness was already fading anyway. Dawn found the car cemetery holding one more wreck. The moon, marooned at its center, was almost indistinguishable from the other discarded objects. It was the same color, had the same condemned look, as something you couldn't imagine ever having been new. A low murmur resounded through the crater of terrestrial trash. The light of dawn revealed a swarm of living things slowly waking up. Hirsute creatures were advancing amid the truck's disemboweled carcasses, the shattered wheels, the crumpled metal. Among the discarded things lived a community of discarded people, people who had been marginalized or who had willingly discarded themselves, people who had tired of racing all over the city to sell and buy new things that were destined to go instantly out of date, people who had decided that the things that had been thrown away were the only real riches of the world. Encircling the moon throughout the amphitheater, these lanky figures stood or sat, their faces framed by beards or unkempt hair. It was a tattered Amalian or bizarrely dressed crowd, and in its midst were my naked Diana and all the girls from the night before. They came forward and began to loosen the steel wires of the net from the nails that had been driven into the ground. Immediately, like a blimp released from its moorings, the moon rose, hovering above the girls' heads, above the grandstand full of hobos, and hung there, held by the steel net, whose wires Diana and her friends were operating, sometimes pulling them, sometimes letting them out. And when the girls started to run, still holding the ends of the wires, the moon followed them. As soon as the moon moved, a kind of wave began to rise from the valleys of wreckage. The old car carcasses, crushed like accordions, started to march, creakily arranging themselves in a procession, and a stream of battered cans rolled along, making a noise like thunder, though you couldn't tell whether they were dragging or being dragged by everything else. Following this moon that had been saved from the scrap heap, all the things and all the people who had been resigned to being tossed in a corner started on the road again and swarmed toward the richest neighborhoods of the city. That morning, the city was celebrating Consumer Thanksgiving Day. This feast came around every year on a day in November and had been set up to allow shoppers to display their gratitude toward the god production, who tirelessly satisfied their every desire. The biggest department store in town organized a parade every year. An enormous balloon in the shape of a garishly colored doll was paraded through the main streets pulled by ribbons that sequin-clad girls held as they marched behind a musical band. That day, the procession was coming down Fifth Avenue. The majorette twirled her baton in the air, the big drums banged, and the balloon giant representing the satisfied customer flew among the skyscrapers, obediently advancing on leashes held by girls in kepis, tassels, and fringed epaulettes riding spangly motorcycles. At the same time, 
Another parade was crossing Manhattan. The flaky, moldy moon was also advancing, sailing between the skyscrapers, pulled by the naked girls, and behind it came a line of beat-up cars and skeletons of trucks amid a silent crowd that was gradually increasing in size. Thousands of people joined the throng that had been following the moon since the early hours of the morning, people of all colors, whole families, with children of every age, especially as the procession filed past the crowded black and Puerto Rican areas of Harlem. The lunar procession zigzagged around uptown, then started down Broadway, and came quickly and silently to converge with the other procession, which was dragging its balloon giant along Fifth Avenue. At Madison Square, one procession met the other, or, more precisely, the two became a single procession. The satisfied customer, perhaps owing to a collision with the moon's jagged surface, deflated into a rubber rag. On the motorcycles now were the Dianas, pulling the moon with multicolored ribbons, or, rather, since the number of naked women had at least doubled, the female motorcyclists must have thrown away their uniforms and kepis. A similar transformation had overtaken the motorcycles and the cars in the parade. You could no longer tell which were the old cars and which were the new. The twisted wheels, the rusty fenders, were mixed together with bodywork as shiny as a mirror and paint that gleamed like enamel. And behind the parade, shop windows became covered with cobwebs and mold. Skyscrapers' elevators started to creak and groan. Advertising posters turned yellow. The egg holders and refrigerators filled with chicks as if they were incubators. Televisions reported whirling atmospheric storms. The city had consumed itself at a stroke. It was a disposable city that now followed the moon on its last voyage. To the sound of the band drumming on empty gas cans, the procession arrived at the Brooklyn Bridge. Diana raised her majorette's baton. Her friends twirled their ribbons in the air. The moon made a last dash, traversed the curved girl-work of the bridge, tipped toward the sea, crashed into the water like a brick, and sank, sending thousands of little bubbles to the surface. Meanwhile, instead of letting the ribbons go, the girls had stayed attached to them, and the moon had lifted them up, sending them flying over the parapet and off the bridge. They described arcs in the air like divers and disappeared into the water. We stood and stared in astonishment, some of us on the Brooklyn Bridge, others on the jetties on the shore, caught between the urge to dive in after them and the certainty that we would see them reappear again just as before. We did not have to wait long. The sea began to vibrate with waves that spread out in a circle. At the center of this circle there appeared an island, which grew like a mountain, like a hemisphere, like a globe resting on the water, or rather, raised up just above it, no, like a moon rising in the sky. I say a moon, even though it did not resemble a moon any more than the one we had seen plunge into the depths a few moments before. However, this new moon had a very different way of being different. It emerged from the sea, dripping a trail of green, glistening seaweed, Spouts of water gushed in fountains from fields that lent it the sheen of an emerald. A steamy jungle covered it, but not with plants. This covering seemed to be made of peacock feathers, full of eyes and shimmering colors. 
This was the landscape that we hardly managed to glimpse before the sphere swiftly receded into the sky, and the more minute details were lost in a general impression of freshness and lushness. It was dusk, the contrasts of the colors were fading into a vibrant chiaroscuro, the lunar fields and woods were now just barely visible contours on the taut surface of the shining globe. But we were able to catch sight of some hammocks hanging from branches, rocked by the wind, and I saw, nestling in them, the girls who had led us to that place. I recognized Diana, at peace at last, fanning herself with a feather punka, and perhaps sending me a signal of recognition. There they are! There she is, I shouted. We all shouted, and the happiness at having found them again was already fraught with the pain of having lost them now forever, as the moon, rising in the dark sky, sent out only the reflections of the sun on its lakes and fields. We were seized by a frenzy. We began to gallop across the continent, through the savannas and forests that had recovered the earth, burying cities and roads, obliterating all trace of what had been. And we trumpeted, lifting up to the sky our trunks and our long, thin tusks, shaking the shaggy hair of our croups with the violent anguish that takes hold of all us young mammoths when we realize that now is when life begins, and yet it is clear that what we desire we shall never have. That was The Daughters of the Moon by Italo Calvino, which was published in The New Yorker in 2009 in a translation by Martin McLaughlin. The story is collected in Complete Cosmicomics, published by Penguin Classics. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Bob, you were talking about the fact that this story has a more overt message than than most of Calvino's writing. What would you say that message is? Well, basically, it's about uh, consumerism. It's satirized throughout the idea that we have to have a new thing before the old thing is old and that we create things that are kind of self-destruct items and in the process uh, creating these huge junkyards um, and uh, not actually being any happier by (laughs) doing so or living a better life. And he chose for for his sort of wasteland of, of getting and spending, he chose to set this story in New York. Which is very convenient for the New Yorker, that's it. Yeah, well, not in not in an Italian city that he knew well, but in New York, which, you know, he visited, but obviously wasn't his home turf. Why Why do you think he did that? Probably he saw New York as a great emblem of consumerism. 
I think he probably knew New York fairly well. He doesn't have the geography perfectly correct, but <laughs> it's close enough. And and he does kind of love the idea, I think, of having this kind of Central Park image where he launches the story mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm. And that may not be easily available in a lot of other cities to have that kind of almost iconic space for a, what is, in the end, a kind of pastoral tale. Where do you think the junkyard is? Is that up in the Bronx? I think he probably just invented it. But when he starts crossing bridges and describing arriving at the mainland, I'm not quite sure where he thinks he is at that point. Yeah, perhaps he's gone to New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. But uh, at that point, it's not so important to him. I think what he, you've got here is a metaphor that we're going to have this happen in this vast junkyard, a junkyard that's going to look like a, a crater on a moon and be filled with uh, strange persons who have retired from life. And that image is stronger than any geographical image. So it's like New York was convenient to launch the tale. And then from then on, it's going to take a different tone. He's got to remember where he is. But beyond that, it's mainly meant to just deliver a tale. Now, there's there's so much going on here in terms of what he's drawing on from, from ancient myth to these pagan rites to what seems to me like a kind of portrait of, of budding hippiedom, you know, those sort of unkempt bearded dropouts having a having a bee in in the junkyard. Well, that was 68 after all. That was, yeah, a, that yeah. was a time when there, you saw a lot of them. It's such a pastiche of different eras. Do you feel like that that's characteristic of what the Cosmicomics do? Uh, not really, no. I, I think it's very unusual Cosmicomic. It's much more physically located. Most of them, everything that happens, happens in an imaginary somewhere rather than in a place like New York. Probably he had a certain uncertainty about incorporating it in his Cosmicomics because it had these different uh, features. It's not a lesser story, but it's different from some of the other Cosmicomics. And it's only by bringing out the whole entire collection that we have access to it. Yeah, it wasn't included in the first volume. No. And yet it was old enough to be included, so it was excluded. It was in a later book, and then afterwards he sort of at one point said he felt it should have been included with the first ones. Well, I didn't know that, but that, that, that makes sense. You know, you, you've said that this is a story with a message or, or that it's a kind of moralistic allegory. Is, is there a message here that, that goes beyond the sort of obvious we shouldn't use things up so much or we shouldn't, you know, be so materialistic? It's somewhat driven by this consumerism thing. I mean, when we, when we deflate the consumer himself in that parade uh, event, it sort of climaxes its point, the story's point in that way. But at the same time, there is always this feeling that um, by story alone, by imagination alone, we get past these errors and moralistic concerns and get into something that's more like what the imagination can conceive of in its positive way. So we, we move into this relatively pastoral scene at the end with the mammoths trumpeting out their their joy as things begin again, and then are left at the very end with that quite sad little observation that we're never going to get what it is we desire. And this may relate to the major surface theme of the piece, but it's actually echoing something else quite differently, because by now we have escaped consumerism, and we are now in this kind of pastoral experience of witnessing a new lush a gorgeous moon. And at that moment, we get this rather sad final thought that uh, it's beautiful uh, and the imagination can carry us so far 
but imagination is not going to finally solve it for us. So it was like a like a little just closer reminding us that Calvino is at heart a realist. What's interesting to me about that transformation at the end is this, yes, it's a rejuvenation, and yes, suddenly everything is green again, but at the same time, it's a, it's a regression. We're back to prehistory, and we seem sort of doomed now to repeat it all. Yeah, that's about the best we can hope for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and start up, again, do it again, but meanwhile, I mean, it, the opening piece has to do with just that, that uh, the moons come and go and that uh, the civilizations come and go, and but they they come as well as go. And uh, that's the kind of finale, and that as they go through their phases and transitions and so on, they nevertheless do not finally uh, bring us this ultimate satisfaction of something that is absolutely good, true, and beautiful. I keep, when I read the story, I keep trying to sort of puzzle out the, the, the temporal logic of it, of that, that return to, to prehistory. Do you think that logic is the wrong tool to use when reading Calvino? Oh, yeah. I mean, his whole fun of using scientific notions and then just totally warping them is part of that pleasure he gets. I'm not sure it has any purpose to it. I mean, I don't think he's saying avoid logic. He just loves to disrupt it. And so what he does with time at the end is um, very Calvinesque. I mean, I find that so typical of him to play with time like that. So what we have is the first-person narrator changes, and that's what's the most disturbing element in terms of logic, that we start with Kufka telling a story about moons that he's seen hundreds of them, and he's going to tell you the most recent one. And we end up in a first-person plural of trumpeting mammoths and not uh, the original narrator at all. Only a writer with a kind of vigorous imagination of a Calvino could do that. Most people would would hesitate to have Quifka disappear from the narration at the end and be displaced by these um, primordial beasts. Well, he's he's become a mammoth, or or you read that and you suddenly wonder if he was a mammoth talking in the beginning. Yeah, that that's left to your imagination. <laughs> but we don't know what Quifka is anyway, because he always uh, is a shape changer. But uh, we don't get the feeling at the beginning that Quifka is a mammoth. We get the feeling that he's you know a, a fairly logical creature uh, like ourselves, who's watched all this happen. And after all, he got in a car and drove chasing uh, the girl and then had her on the hood of his car and so on. That's not mammoth behavior. And (laughs) only at the end, when things change, you realize that as a storyteller, not as a logical narrator, but as a storyteller, Calvino is free to do these things. He can just shift the ground under you, and uh, because he's gifted, he can get away with it. What happens to uh, to the moon and the planet in that East River dunking? You know, what is it about the actual submersion of this hollowed-out, ruined thing in the water that turns it back into a green planet? It's not a uh, a logical transformation. It's not something that you'd say even logical in terms of the so-called moral of the story about consumerism and so on. We bring this thing up out of a graveyard of old rubbish and give it a dunking, a bath, and whatever happens to be nearby and transform it. But the transformation, if it would have been uh, a typical storyteller uh, thinking, well, all right, let's put the moon back like it was. If you had the imagination to think of dunking it in the river and letting it float up and fly out of there, 
all new. It probably would have looked like the moon, but this one doesn't look like the moon. It's Calvino's imagination at work again. It's covered with peacock feathers and has jungly spaces with uh, hammocks and naked girls in them waving at the people on Earth. And so... You know, it's not. We're not asking questions about <laughs> about uh, how that could possibly be the case and whether whether what they're going to breathe and they get out into outer space. It's just this kind of lush, funny, attractive image of um, something very gorgeous uh, made out of junk, something spectacularly beautiful. But it isn't really a moon. It's something else. Well, but it becomes a certain kind of paradise. Yeah, well, a certain kind of paradise. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's what the girls seem to be looking for, and what they were drawn to, and what uh, they they are drifting off into. Once you have mammoths arriving on a somewhat paradisical Earth, trumpeting and getting our final disappointment, the girls and their paradise seem less significant. They seem like like a way to end a very difficult story. It's quite <laughs> easy to work the first part in. It's very difficult to bring this to some sort of satisfying conclusion. And his imagination is working at, you know, top gear to try to accomplish that without just underscoring or underlining some sort of moral. Now, this this story was written in an era before people talked about global warming and, and before people talked about recycling. It seems so prescient to me reading it. Yeah, it was written in a time when people were very unhappy with the way their governments were working and were very unhappy about the way the world was bending, the way it was turning. It was a time of a lot of resistance to sort of everything going on, and the war was part of it, but so was consumerism. All of these things were very much hot topics. I mean, I remember the 60s myself as a period of uh, uh, dissent against all forms of authority, including that established by by consumerism, by by business, and so on. It predates a little bit the more serious assault of of the corporate era, but (laughs) it had elements of it in it already. You'll notice that in Daughters of the Moon, there's, you know, except for the big department store, so-called, there aren't any clear enemies here. It's just consumerism itself. And I think a story like this written in the 80s and 90s would have begun to have identified some of the kind of corporate greed that was provoking uh, this kind of consumerism. Yeah, well, you'd be going after Starbucks and McDonald's and not after the, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Yeah, or the people who supply Macy's even more. You know, the kind of corporate entities that uh, produce all these goods, dig up all the resources, all of the natural resources, just for the purpose of making money and talking people into doing this for fear of having the economy collapse around you if you don't. Yeah, no, it's, it, it has a potential. You know, now somebody could write this story and you would have a, a, a much more fierce kind of tale, I think, than the one that's told here rather innocently, really, from the 1960s. When the, when the first book of Cosmicomics was published, Calvino you know, wrote a note explaining them in which he said, The Cosmicomics have as a basis above all else Leah Party, Popeye's Comics, Samuel Beckett, Giordano Bruno, Lewis Carroll, The Paintings of Mata, and in certain instances, Landolfi, Immanuel Kant, Borges, as well as the engravings of Granville. It seems like a lot to squeeze into these quite short pieces of fiction. Do you see any of that in, in Daughters of the Moon? Well, yes, and that's an interesting list. What I think <laughs> Calvino is doing there is spreading out his reading list that predates the writing of these pieces and were part of his growing up experience. I mean, a lot of the material that he's describing 
was very much in the air in the uh, 60s, and these were the things that all of us were reading. Uh, many of us would make lists quite similar to those. And how these get transformed into these stories is is the mystery of creation itself, of, of artistic creation. But what lies behind them is what he's letting you know about, that these are things that he has read and seen and thought about, and that somehow they they have filtered into his imagination, and that when he writes anything, probably this would be his list. But certainly here in, in this story, Daughters of the Moon, there are so many traces of Calvino's reading and view, viewing experience, even life experience, that are there perhaps without his even being able to put his finger on precisely what it is, but that he feels as he thinks about the stories, that those other things have had an impact on the way he thinks. And you said your list would be similar? Uh, it would be quite similar, yes. It, it would include Calvino, of course, <laughs> which his does not. Well, thank you so much, Bob. Thanks, Deborah. Robert Coover's new book, The Brunus Day of Wrath, is coming out later this year from Zank Books, a collection of Calvino's letters from 1941 to 1985, also translated by Martin McLaughlin, will be published by Princeton University Press in June. You can subscribe to this podcast, as well as The New Yorker Out Loud and The Political Scene, in the iTunes Store. Download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com, or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.